0: We have to know what Precisely improves patient care. Now that may sound rather obvious to those of you joining this WIHI, but the need to determine the most effective improvements to harness the results and spread and share and sustain the gains is as important as ever and doesn't lessen just because everyone's been at this now for some time. This message comes through loud and clear every year at IHI's Scientific Symposium and the most recent December 2014 gathering adjacent to IHI's National forum was no exception. In fact, attendees singled out two abstracts and one storyboard as especially notable for their research designs and contribution to improvement. I'm so pleased to welcome the three individuals leading these standout efforts to this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show, we love to say, from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you bi-weekly, and you can also find us later at your convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. A couple of themes stood out for me in working with our guests on this edition of WIHI. (coughs) Excuse me, one is that caring for children and all the improvements being made in pediatric care continue to demonstrate how much innovation is possible and how much can be done to make things better. The other theme is one that's gathering steam in the world of educating future health professionals, whether medical students or nursing students or pharmacy students, or in the case of the group we'll hear about today, medical residents, the role of trainees in contributing to better care is critical. The era of passive learner is long gone, replaced by active learners who notice all kinds of safety issues and, if encouraged, will speak up about them and contribute to the changes necessary to provide safer care. So we've got a rich set of issues coming up, and I'll get to introductions in just a moment, but first, here's IHI's John Gothier here in the studio with me with some reminders about how to have an enjoyable time with us today on WIHI. John.
1: All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to help everybody make the most of today's program. On the right of the screens, are chat window. If you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor later to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see all the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. But a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that persists, please let the folks at IHI's customer service know. We have their number on the screen as we speak. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow they'll be posted at our archive over at IHI.org slash WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at, wi- at and they'll send them your way. That's info at IHI.org. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here at WIHI, and we could use your help for that. Please take some time after the program to fill out our quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge.
0: All right. Thanks so much, John. And don't forget, if you like to tweet, if you're on Twitter, please use at the twi- excuse me at the IHI in your tweets if you want to make some comments about t- today's show. In addition to participating in the chat. And we'll get to that chat and your comments and questions in about a half an hour. All right, some brief introductions. We've got a couple people on the phone, and then Gareth Perry is here with me in the studio. B.C. Alley is the current VA Chief Resident in Quality and Patient Safety, working closely with internal medicine residents and hospital staff at the Phoenix VA Healthcare System and Banner University Medical Center, formerly known as Banner Good Samaritan Medical Center. Welcome, B.C. Going to unmute your line there. And Lori too. Hi, BC. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Fabulous. Okay. Lori Ruttman, also on the phone, is attending physician in the Division of Pediatric Emergency Medicine at Seattle Children's Hospital. Dr. Ruttman has an interest in quality improvement research and is a graduate of the Advanced Improvement Methods AIM course at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Welcome, Lori. Great to be here. Fabulous. Angela Statil, I hope I've got the pronunciation right there, is a pediatric hospitalist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. She treats a variety of acute and chronic inpatient general pediatric conditions and has established herself as a leader in quality improvement, medical education, and clinical research. Great to have you with us, Angela. Welcome. Okay, we know you're there. (laughs) make sure we got her line going okay thanks
2: i've got it yep Uh, okay
0: (laughs) thanks all right oh this, this is your time it's it's a little bit uh like uh you know calling in yes here presente And Gareth Perry is here in the studio with me. He's a senior scientist at IHI and a clinical assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. At IHI, Gareth leads the development of a rapid cycle evaluation system. He co-owns the improvement capability focus area and provides scientific leadership for several IHI programs. Welcome, Gareth. (coughs) Hi, thanks. All right. Okay, so we're going to start right off with Gareth because he's going to set the scene and kind of take us back in time just a few months before all the snow, Gareth. (laughs) Uh, In December, we couldn't have imagined. Um, But Gareth, uh, for a few years running, uh, has been one of the lead organizers of the scientific symposium. And he's going to set the stage for us a little bit about that event from which this work and the people who are with us today have bubbled up. Gareth, what were some of the dominant themes? And just give us a contextual sense of the quality of the submissions uh, this last year. There were a lot of uh, um, presentations from the world of pediatrics.
3: There were, yes. Um, So this year at the Scientific Symposium, uh, we had probably uh, the record number, actually. We actually sold out at the Scientific Symposium this year, I think, for the first time ever. Uh, It's been running now for um, just over 20 years. Um, so we have just over 370 people there. Um, we, we, this year, we had around 200 um, abstract submissions, and out of those, we chose 32 uh, for oral presentation and 56, which we chose uh, as posters. I'd, I'd say, yes, in, in terms of the overall themes, we, we kind of tried to design in a, a learning um, system theme, uh, our opening plenary by Mark Smith, which is a fantastic opening pl- um, keynote um, and presentation, was really focusing on how you build learning systems, um, which, which we really need in, as we start moving forward and start developing much more complex um, uh, ways of trying to improve health and, and, and healthcare um, across the globe. And there were also various method sessions which were built in, notably Tom Nolan um, and also talked about um, learning systems as well, and that was really there as a way to try and encourage people to to learn from each other. To underline, this is a really important um, part of improvement. Is is not just individuals acting alone, but but really around teamwork, learning from each other. Um, in terms of what was actually um, sent to us as 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 um, as abstracts. We did end up choosing um, quite a lot, which featured maternal and child health. Probably about a quarter of, a, of all our presentations were around that theme, which is, I think, a really interesting thing for, for the improvement world and, and health and healthcare to think about. Uh, we also had a, a, another recurring theme, which was around patient safety. There was a lot of stuff about medical uh, medicines reconciliations and infections. Um, I think what was newer this year was was more work around spread and what we might call spread and scale up. How you take interesting ideas, which which have been found to be effective in a few settings and actually get them to, 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 to be worked at in in other, in other settings as well. There was also, I think, another newer theme, which was somewhat, something around um, patient and family-centered care as well, which which I think is great to see. I think as, as we go forward around improvement, I think getting a sense of what the patient voice is, listening to what matters to the patient, and bringing that into improvement is going to be really important as well.
0: Okay, sounds really good. And I think that the... Um, This focus in the pediatric area, I I too think is really interesting and we're about to hear uh, two uh, really interesting examples. And then we'll hear from uh, BC about medical residents, another very, very, I think, hot topic which has to do with being able to uh, speak up more about uh, adverse events. So Angela, let me turn to you. One of the big bottlenecks in healthcare that many, many hospitals work on has to do with the discharge process, so you're not alone there. Uh, For children with medically complex health issues, though, to begin with, and their families who already spend probably a lot of time in hospitals in dealing with healthcare, it strikes me that being able to leave when you're clear to leave. Uh, is very, very important. So tell us what was going on at Cincinnati Children's that you and your team decided to address and then how the work unfolded. And welcome again, Angela.
2: Great, Um, thanks so much for this opportunity. Um, So in Cincinnati, we've actually been working on our discharge process for several years on our pediatric hospital medicine patients. Um, A few years back, we realized that our discharge process was not very efficient when kids were ready to go home from the hospital. Our goals for discharge were not standardized among different physicians, even for patients with similar diagnoses, and we often had tasks that weren't completed, um, such as medications being filled, which would delay families from leaving the hospital. So we initially uh, worked on this discharge process on our general inpa- inpatients um, by developing a process that included setting the medical discharge goals for our patient on admission. So what happens is that the residents uh, will order specific goals for each patient based on what brought them into the hospital, and our nurses check off the goals as they're met directly into the medical record. And we've created side processes to assure that tasks to prepare the patients for discharge are in place before they're ready to leave from a medical standpoint. So we had really great success with this process on our acute care patients who are generally in the hospital for a very short time timeframe. Uh, but we found that the same process didn't work well for our patients with medical complexity. Um, who have, of course, very unique discharge needs. They have many medications, multiple consulting doctors, and often very unique home care situations, even including private duty nursing that needs to be arranged. So we turned our focus of what I presented at IHI um, at the symposium to focus on improving the efficiency of the discharge process in these medically complex patients. And we define them as patients who are neurologically impaired, so those with cerebral palsy, for example, and technology dependent, meaning they rely on devices such as feeding or breathing tubes. So our SMART aim, um, which was similar to the original project, was to improve the percentage of patients who were discharged within two hours of meeting medical discharge goals from our baseline around 50% up to 80%. And and just to note, we don't send patients home in the middle of the night. Um, So we start that two hour time period at um, 7 a.m. if a patient meets goals overnight. So we were successful in meeting our goal within about nine months, and we've sustained about 10 months since then, so um, out beyond what you're seeing here. And several interventions were key for us. We first placed our medically complex patients onto one team, which is led by an attending hospitalist and includes a bunch of people um, to work together. So our resident physicians, our nurse practitioners, our bedside nurses. We have a social worker, a pharmacist, a dietitian, and care managers and they join us along with the family uh, at the bedside for family-centered rounds so we can coordinate all of our efforts. We also created an order set for use in our electronic health record that makes it easy for the providers to choose those medical goals specific to these patients uh, when they're admitted. We hold uh, weekly care coordination rounds, um, which is a time where we get together and dedicate a half hour per week at looking at the goals for each patient and then also tracking what items are needed for discharge. And to facilitate that conversation, we created a needs assessment tool, which is a note in the patient's chart that documents all the items that they'll need for discharge. So things like education, which medications, what follow-up appointments. And all of our different team members have access to that note and track the progress of those tasks over time. Um, We did include two parents of medically complex patients as part of our planning team, and we also discuss our discharge goals on rounds with families every day to provide transparency. I would say a big challenge for us is sustaining our gains, um, and mostly that's due to the relatively small number of patients that are included, if you can see our ends at the bottom of the screen. Um, But we've begun spreading the project to new units, so we hope that getting more patients involved will allow us to make even uh, better changes for them.
0: So thank you. Thanks a lot. And, um, We'll probably, oh, and you have a nice uh, thank you. And I know everyone's going to want to thank all the people who were involved, lest anyone think that any single person <laughs> uh, right. brought this all about themselves. So uh, this is a, a great image, and, and everyone will have an opportunity to say something as well uh, about the others with them. Uh, very quick uh, follow-up question before I turn to Lori. Um, could you say whether uh, patients and families or family members were in any way involved in the uh, design of some of the changes and uh, the redesign and some of the things you were trying to figure out for the medically complex kids?
2: Yes, yes. We did have families involved um, every step of the way. We had actually identified two parents who uh, are frequently have children that are on this team, um, and they came to our planning meetings and helped us come up with the design and, and work through some of the struggles along the way.
0: Okay. And another very quick question. I promise you I won't throw sure. any curveballs. What do you think was most on the minds of the parents uh, in, in particular in terms of things that were they most wanted yeah. to see changed? Uh, obviously, less waiting around, but what were things that right. they contributed <laughs>
2: the transparency was a big thing that they really wanted. So they felt like sometimes the medical team had ideas in their head of what they were looking for as goals, um, but it might be different than what the family was thinking. So really just getting us on the same page okay. was, a big, was a big thing for them.
0: Okay, great. All right. Well, folks, think of uh, questions you too might want to ask Angela when we get to that section of the show. Thank you, Angela. I want to turn now to Lori. Um, and uh, Lori Rutman, among the things that stands out initially about the work at Seattle Children's uh, is that you've had a standardized pathway for patients with asthma since 2002, and that perhaps reminds all of us that asthma um, has been something that's gotten a lot of widespread attention from the improvement community, especially in pediatrics. But fast forward, more than a decade later, and your hospital uh, has taken another hard look at the guidelines, Uh, what, besides the fact that it might have been time to review uh, these pathways, uh, prompted uh, the review, and what did you come up with? And thanks, Lori.
4: Thank you. Um, Yeah, so, you know, at our institution, asthma is the leading cause of ED diagnoses that result in hospital admission. Um, And I think because asthma patients make up such a significant proportion of the patients we see, um, the hospital for a long time has felt that improving asthma care really brings us closer to our goal of providing high quality care for all of our patients. And that is why it was one of the first standardized clinical pathways that we implemented back in 2002. Um, We've also recognized though over this long period of time that with any improvement initiative, reevaluation is really important um, and we've continually PDSA'd our pathway um, and has resulted in multiple modifications um over the years to our asthma pathway. So in general at Seattle Children's our clinical standard work or CSW pathways undergo quarterly reviews um, and they're updated at a minimum of every three years. Um, but the process is designed to be flexible and that really so that we can respond and make modifications as needed when we're noting undesirable trends in our the monthly metrics that we follow. So Back in 2011, our long-established asthma pathway underwent significant modification, and that the results of that were really the focus of this project. So the modifications that we made in 2011 were both in response to some of those undesirable trends that we were noticing in our monthly metrics, um, as well as a response to an updated literature review on the best evidence-based practice for asthma at the time. So to give an example, um, one major change that we made was including standardized admission criteria after one hour of treatment in the emergency department. So our pathway, as you can see here, is driven by a clinical respiratory score. Um, and prior to 2011, we noticed that many of our high score asthmatics, so those are the, the kids that end up on the right side of the, of the pathway that you're viewing, were basically, they were staying in the ED a long time before they were admitted to the hospital. Um, and so, we dug a little bit deeper, reviewed data for about six months, and saw that for asthma patients that were coming in, over 90% of those who still had a high score, um, the 12-point scale, so kids who had a score of eight or greater, after receiving an hour of our standard um, therapy in the emergency department, You know, greater than 90% were ultimately admitted to the hospital, but they stayed in the emergency department a long time before providers made that decision, probably because we were trying to tweak them and get them to a point where we could send them home, but really we were never able to send them home. So this information coupled with the review of the published literature really enabled us to add that standardized admission criteria to our pathway um, based on a patient's respiratory score. And after making the change, um, we were able to decrease our ED length of stay for admitted patients by an average of about 30 minutes, Um, And the question always comes up, you know, do you think it's actually the um, standardized admission criteria? And, you know, I really do believe it was driven by that. Um, We also looked at time to provider putting in a bed request order, um, kind of as a proxy for their time to decision to admit a patient, and that also decreased by 30 minutes. Um, I think importantly here with this one change we made and the outcomes we followed, we also closely followed our overall percent of asthma admissions and our inpatient length of stay and our 24-hour Florida ICU transfer rate, all those kind of balancing measures to make sure there were no unintended consequences of making these admissions decisions sooner. Um, And we found no change in these measures after making that modification. So these results have been sustained over time. Um, Another change to the pathway that you can see here that was really driven by a review of our own data um, was a change in the recommendation for steroids that a patient received at the time of hospital discharge. So we've been closely monitoring our monthly data and noticed that we were having um, an increase in our unplanned hospital readmissions, which is something that we take very seriously and always want to address. So at that time for asthmatics, many of them were receiving a short course of dexamethasone after hospital discharge, and that was similar to the practice that we had Um, taken on in our emergency department for patients who are discharged from the ED, um, but recognizing that the patients who are hospitalized are different than the patients who get discharged from the emergency department, we modified the pathway to include recommendations for um, a longer course of steroids after discharge, and actually saw both dramatic improvements in the provider prescribing practices after the pathway was modified, and also, perhaps more importantly, we made improvements in our unplanned readmission rates. And then the other changes that um, you saw on the pathway were things regarding new evidence-based recommendations um, with regards to IV magnesium for severe asthmatics in the ED, and we set very strict criteria based on the best uh, literature we could find for kids who would qualify for use of IV magnesium um, and saw an uptake in provider use of MAG, though the the numbers of qualifying kids were still pretty small. Um, We also took a hard look at, at that time, Atrovent or Ipertropium bromide use, um, a review of the medical literature there affirmed the utility of Atrovent only in the ED, and so for that we made a pathway modification, also provided some provider education, and I think probably most importantly changed our electronic order set that's linked to the pathway, and with those interventions we were able to dramatically decrease um, our inpatient Atrovent use. So. We made a lot of changes in 2011, um, you know, some that reflected kind of our local practice and things that we were noticing within our own data and some that reflected changes that were happening in the published literature. Um, And I think what this, you know, taking this big look at the comprehensive analysis of our data shows is that you can continually reevaluate established clinical pathways. So you can teach an old dog new tricks, you can change provider practice, and really improve care for common pediatric problems even, you know, when they've been around and they've been studied since you know, for over a decade.
0: Okay. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. And I'm sorry, John, let's do this. Let's go through those (laughs) three trend lines. uh, Very, very, we'll go back to figure one and make sure uh, that um, Lori just has a moment to make sure everyone understands what these are. I'm sorry, we didn't quite have them queued up at the right moment. So you want to (laughs) just quickly um, just make sure everyone understands what we're looking at. And by the way, if you're only on the phone, you can get these slides by emailing info at IHI.org. They'll also be on our website. Site tomorrow, and there are links uh, already um, in the chat screen for those of you logged into the computer where you can also download. So, sorry, Lori, maybe just quickly go through each one. Yeah.
4: Sure, no problem. So, this the figure that you're seeing now is really taking a look at our provider adherence, and I actually think that a lot of the success um, with our other outcomes was dependent on this. So. This reflects patients who had an ED asthma, or sorry, a hospital asthma pathway order set activated. So this is sort of our marker that the the pathway is being used, the order set's being used, and adherence to our asthma pathway has been very high. So we looked two years before and two years after on this chart the um, the pathway modification, and you know adherence was at about 80% before. We did have a bump, so this p chart shifted its center line after we had a, a shift of eight points above the center line after the modification, bringing it close to 90 percent, but just I think the, the message from this chart is really just that adherence to the asthma pathway has historically been high and continues to be high despite the modifications. This next um, graph is also a p-chart, and this, as I mentioned, is looking at the um, percentage of eligible asthmatics who received magnesium sulfate in the ED. The numbers were smaller, so we um, used rational subgrouping here to group the the data by quarter, um, but Basically, to qualify for mag sulfate, a child has to be six years of age or greater and, you know, still having a high respiratory score after receiving our standard ED therapy, after receiving steroids, and after receiving high-dose albuterol. Um So this really shows the trend in provider practice change. So more people are using magnesium for kids who qualify um, for IV magnesium. And then the last one, um, this is one of the the charts that I think really reflects the provider buy-in to the pathway and to the order set usage. So um, I mentioned that we reviewed the literature and back in 2011, you know, it was very clear that atrovent should only be used in the emergency department, not as an inpatient. Um, And so we made the change to the pathway, we made the change to the order set, and we had a very dramatic um, decrease as we'd hoped for in inpatient atrovent use.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay. So we've heard from Angela and Lori now, and now we're going to switch gears a little bit into the world of training and residents in particular in the VA system, and uh, we have BC with us. Um, And I would say, BC, we... Almost take it for granted now that we want medical residents to speak up about adverse events and near misses as we want everyone to um, and uh, to file reports even, but the culture and the system to support this are still relatively new, so tell us about the uh, work at the VA what prompted it, and uh, what your, kind of what new systems uh, you've got in operation and welcome again BC.
5: Thank you very much. I'm excited to be a part of this program. Um, it's been a great year as chief resident in quality and patient safety. Um, this is a nationally funded position, and the goal has been to prioritize quality improvement and patient safety, uh, both through the internal medicine residents, and we have about 100, including prelims and med residents, and then also with our supporting facilities, both Banner Good Samaritan Medical Center and the Phoenix VA Healthcare System. Um, so, in response to ACGME and the Clinical Learning Environmental Review Program, their objectives were that residents should uh, be able to observe adverse events near misses and uh, unsafe conditions, as well as event report, and then participate in processes that promote and enhance safe care. So, we did a needs assessment survey of our residents. Uh, we had about 70% participation, and they were asked to reflect over the past 12 months of their participation in residency. So we started with uh, the simple questions, um, are they reporting adverse events? Are they participating and observing? And we showed that less than 50% were observing, less than 40% reported prior of that reporting electronically, and then less than 20% reported participation in processes to promote that safe care. Um, Common barriers that they acknowledged were familiarity with the event reporting system, and then also limitations in time. So, and in addition, our data before the launch of our curriculum in response to this concern showed that residents um, weren't reporting and we were able to measure that electronically as well. So, through the guidance of my mentors, Jordan Colston and uh, Hamed Abazadegan, we launched a three-legged curriculum And the goal of our curriculum was to create, um, basically redesign and prioritize these objectives that were set forth by ACGMe and CLEAR. So the first leg of this curriculum is to um, discuss on a weekly basis with the ward team. So we have about two interns and one resident and then about two medical students, and we discuss the definitions of adverse events and near misses, as well as unsafe conditions, and then we talk about how do we actually review the procedure to report them electronically. They then learn about the next parts of our curriculum, which include the Patient Safety Consult Service. This is an idea that came from the Indianapolis VA, specifically, uh, Doctors Leanne Cox, David Miller, Noel Sinex, and Leah Logia. but our implementation here is very unique to us. So this involves um, using the current VA general medicine consult service where we have two residents on this service review one patient safety consult per week. They then review all the different causative factors through a fishbone diagram. They also discuss the processes and uh, relevant concerns with stakeholders. And then we staff just like a traditional consult service every week with faculty and review what are plausible interventions. I then work with the relevant departments to create and fuel um, system-based interventions that um, we can help prevent the, these adverse events and near misses from happening again. So the third leg of our curriculum is the patient safety uh, conferences, which are monthly events. They're interprofessional, and we use the first half of the conference, they're hour long, but the first half of the conference is dedicated to introducing a new quality improvement tool or topic. And then the next half is uh, where we review a patient safety case and then work together as a group to create an intervention that is related to that case. So it's a bigger scale version almost of our consult service. So, for example, we had a resident reported delay in auscultation of a patient that was on um, contact precaution for C. diff. And that was a result of not being able to locate a contact or a single-use stethoscope. So, this resident brought forth this consult after reporting electronically to our patient safety consult service. Where we reviewed the underlying contributing cause was uh, the fact that we have a non-standard practice of stocking our isolation carts. Uh, this then fed forward to our patient safety conference. We discussed human factors engineering and 5S SS tools, um, and then reviewed the case in a larger uh, conference setting, and then came up with ways to des- redesign our current practice. We worked with logistics. Um, we work with supply chain management, infection prevention, nursing, the residents, and then of course our quality improvement and patient safety departments. And the ultimate goal is, or the ultimate change is now we have standard places to put our stethoscopes. Uh, we're test piling at this at, at our banner facility. Um, where residents can now know where to look specifically for those stethoscopes. And then at our Phoenix VA site, we have redesigned the isolation carts using the 5S model with clear labels. Um, we take we have removed things that aren't contributory to uh, proper procedure. So it's just it's been a fruitful year in terms of working with um, working with these different uh, residents and departments to create such success. And specifically, Um, We're meeting the objectives set forth by ACGMe and CLEAR, which means that we are now improving identification of these adverse events. We're event reporting and participating interprofessionally. Residents love it. They say that this is a forum for them to have these discussions about unsafe care or ways to make changes. They um, note that they're contributing to um, better patient safety outcomes. And they really enjoy reviewing the underlying processes, whether it's just seeing how uh, an order that they submit electronically gets reviewed by our nursing staff and how to improve that process. So I think the best part is we're preparing or helping to prepare residents who are not only capable here in residency of reviewing underlying processes that are unsafe and making them better, but that they will go on in the future to be a part of a system change, so wherever they are. And
0: I believe in this process. Wow. Well, um, you definitely sound like you believe in this process. So thank you for the really passionate uh, presentation and indeed to all of you. Uh, and uh, I it really – lots of trend lines moving in, in uh, the right direction, and I appreciated also the example, BC, that you uh, provided. I want to uh, get some remarks in here from Gareth before we go to chat, but I'd love uh, for you all on the uh, program today to um, – uh, chime in here if you're doing work that's in any way similar to anything that we've heard about uh, today, um, and including this last thing in terms of um, work um, with medical residents in adverse events uh, engagement, um, and ACGME and clear is clearly is clearly sorry for that pun, but is clearly trying to um, really uh, turn up the dial on all of this. So, Gareth, some reflections on what you've heard and how they maybe fit into even some of the larger trends you're seeing uh, in terms of uh, the quality of, of the work here thanks
3: yeah I think I think in all three of these presentations these, these little presentations here I think what's 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 what struck me most um, is really that all three of them have got clear aims um, all three of them have got pretty well-articulated, well-described change ideas which which were in all of these um, presentations and they were in all of the abstracts which when they submitted these things, when they submitted in the first place, Um, they all have data as well, Um, data plotted over time Um, and not only that, um, all the learning which they're describing here and talking about here um, is actually based on applying changes um, and looking at the data and all of those things are really core components of what we think of of as improvement and probably what we might even think of as um, the science of improvement. It's, it's really about Setting clear aims, we think it's about um, having really being able to describe the sort of the change ideas. Um, one, of the, one of the presentations there, we had a driver diagram. Um, <clears throat> and that's, that's really important to be able to sort of summarize what it is that, you, that you're trying to do here. Um, and the data and having a measurement system and a measurement system which looks at data over time and you can get the feedback on a, on a rapid and reliable basis and feed that into the system so you can update your, your changes and, and make, you know, make make changes as you go along. Um, that's really the essence, if you like, of a learning system. Um, and I think I think there's a number of challenges, though. I mean, this is great, but, but I think that the challenges which I think we face is, as an improvement field um, are, are things about how do you now get this work published? Um, how, would you, how do you get this work published in such a way that other organizations, if necessary, could learn from it? Um, who, who, who is it who really does want this stuff, who wants to publish this stuff? Because I think if if all our pres- presenters here are, are going to try and build um, careers in around research, if you like, or around the science of improvement, they're going to need to be able to do that. Um, and and that's a, I think that's one of the challenges which I think we're facing right now.
0: One of the biggest ones, you would say.
3: Uh, yes.
0: Okay. <laughs> all right. Any, any thoughts about publishing? Uh, feel free to chime in. All right. Well, thanks, Gareth, and thanks uh, for all our presenters here, uh, B.C., Lori, and Angela. And I want to encourage you all now to chime in on chat, and, John, maybe just a brief reminder to folks how to pose your questions or comments.
1: Yeah, any questions or comments, just make sure they're addressed to all participants. Down where you see the send to bar on the in the chat, make sure that you've tabbed it to all
0: participants. Okay, thanks, John. And uh, I'm real curious whether anybody's working on anything similar. Uh, Ask away, contribute away, uh, things that you might want to compare and contrast in terms of your own work. Uh, We did have one um, question that came in early uh, from Linda. I know your N is small, and this is referring to... um, Angela, I believe, but did you see any bump in your CAP score or other patient satisfaction measures? What about other pediatric QI measures? So we'll, we'll uh, start with you on that one, Angela.
2: Yeah, great question. Um, we definitely don't have enough patients yet to see uh, any measurable differences. We we did not see a decline in them, um, which, which is good on the units that were involved. So it didn't seem like we were negatively harming the system. But um, I don't think anything we could attribute to our project until we're able to spread to more patients.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask a, quality, a, a follow-up question to that, whether or not some of the things that you figured out, I know you started in your presentation when you were talking about the discharge process, about improvements that were made in other parts uh, of the acute care system, and then moving on to medically complex, but I'm curious if anything that you learned in uh, improvements for uh, children with medically complex conditions ended up going the other way, uh, and, you know, had a spillover Positive effect on a discharge elsewhere.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's also a great question. Um, some of the resources that we have now in place for the medically complex patients um, for example, our care manager, uh, she will also help out with our acute care kits, and she's been really, really helpful in, um, actually several of the care managers, in helping us facilitate discharge for some of the acute care kits, too. So now that we have a a person who's dedicated to this team, she's also able to help out with the other patients, too. So that would be one example, I would say. Okay.
0: Do families in any way uh, feel pushed out? Was that, that a worry that uh, actually, as opposed to waiting around, that people were trying to speed them out the door. Definitely,
2: it was a worry uh, going into this project, so we're very, very careful to um, frame this in a positive way with the families and, you know, explain to them that we have these goals in mind so we can help them be ready to go when they're When their child is ready to go. We never push families out the door so if a family expresses discomfort that's a trigger for us to bring the team back together and figure out what's going on with the patient. Um, So we haven't had families feel or, or telling us that they're feeling pushed out the door but it's something that we're always monitoring and always trying to be conscious of.
0: Okay, thanks. Um, I'm curious if either BC or Lori uh, and Angela, too, if you have any questions about each other's work. Um, I was imagining you all uh, as presenters and participants as well at the recent scientific symposium. Um, any questions that come to mind, feel free to chime in about that. I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you do have any, uh, feel free. Any questions there? As folks are getting warmed up here? (laughs) Everybody was... All right. Think on that question. Um, I can
2: think of one, match.
0: Go go Um, ahead. It's
2: Angela. Yeah. I, I... I know I've gotten the chance to talk to you guys a little bit, but um, Lori, I was wondering if you had a lot of pushback um, from providers as you were implementing uh, some of those changes. I know you talked about it a little bit, but just wondering if if everybody was open to the change or if it took some convincing, and once they saw progress, if that helped you uh, get further.
4: Yeah, you know, I think that is always a concern, Um, and with Asthma is yeah. one um, condition where we've had really great buy-in and really great sort of adherence to what we recommend on the pathway, I think, because the changes we recommend have pretty solid evidence behind them. I can say from looking at um, some outcomes of some of our other pathways where, you know, the evidence isn't quite as strong, I mean asthma has been researched for a really long time, um, but other things, other conditions where the evidence isn't quite as strong or where provider practices. Uh, pretty variable, it's a lot harder to get the buy-in. Um, you know, we we review all the all the literature and come up, you know, grade it, and then decide if, you know, what our recommendations are going to be. Sometimes if there's not great evidence, it's based on local consensus, uh, consensus of a panel of experts that we've kind of put together to develop the pathway, and there's definitely more variability in practice and harder to get that provider buy-in when the evidence isn't quite as strong.
0: Thank you. Uh, I'm... F- I want to, my keyboard here isn't working so well, so uh, I'm gonna invite everyone who's tuned in to tell us what improvements are you working on right now. I'm curious what brought you to the program, what kinds of things uh, uh, you're working on and uh, what you've even heard so far that's helpful. Uh, Here's a question. Uh, Adverse event, I, I gotta read my screen here. Adverse event reporting typically is viewed as a nursing responsibility. While there was enthusiasm by the resident population BC to report adverse events, how about the physician re- providers' willingness? We always advocate for physician reporting. It's just not the norm. Uh, BC? I think that's a great
5: question. Um, part of our program here is very much interface between our attendings and residents. So it helps with our the way our setup is that we have teams. So. Our attending physicians or supervising physicians very much work integri- intimately with our residents so that when we have adverse events and near misses, even if it is the resident that is actively submitting or electronically submitting the adverse event or near miss, the attending is aware of the situation. So the other thing we're trying to uh, improve on is integrating faculty, so our attending physicians, to be more... Um, part of our patient safety consult services, so that they are responsible and help for uh, staffing the consults. But I think the other consideration is that our residents will graduate to become attending physicians. So even if initially there is a slow process, um, as that um, listener pointed out, is a slow process to get physicians on board, that residents will become attending physicians, and once they know that this current system exists, and they can also promote other attendings and amongst future interns and residents.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Question for Angela. As I recall, you are at an EPIC EMR center, correct? how was your tool uh, constructed in EPIC uh, for goals of discharge? Can you explain a little more on that?
2: Yes. Yes, we do use the EPIC um, EMR here, and um, we put these discharge goals straight into our order sets. So we have order sets for our most common conditions, um, and we picked sets of... um, goals that are common for those patients. So for the complex care patients, we made their own order set. It includes items that are really common for them. So you know, maybe needing to be on their home oxygen for a certain number of hours, as an example, or receiving their home feeds for a certain number of hours. And that's included right directly into the EMR. They click, you know, there's boxes that they can choose, the applicable ones, and then they can also put more of their own um, as needed. And that goes straight into the orders, and then the nurses are able to see those. They can be modified, and then the nurses actually copy them over to the plan of care, and that's where they're able to check them off. And then when they meet the final goal, they actually press a button in the electronic medical record, and then that signals the time. Um, it stamps the time, and then we're all able to view it on the nursing and the physician side. Um, but there's certainly... Um, more details that I would be welcome to answer and get you to the right people if anyone's interested in a similar process.
0: Okay, thank you. Uh, All of our guests have generously provided their email uh, addresses on their bio slides if you do have some questions that occur uh, to you uh, after the fact. All right, um, I have... uh Working with BC, the residency program and program director are very much excited and involved. Uh, a lot of the academic attendings are involved in the projects and invested in this, so attendings are in favor and push for physician reporting, plus our pharmacists are involved um, also. Well, thank you for that um, uh, addition there question. How do your resident patient safety conferences interface with your regular patient safety work group and processes? Supplementary, question mark, replacing, collaborative? BC, that's for you.
5: That's also a great question. Um, So I'd say at this point they're more supplementary. They've been ongoing now for three years. We've been doing this forum of the patient safety conferences. Um, And again, they are interprofessional, but Our goal is to make this more institutionalized so that we are able to work more closely and align our goals with both existing quality improvement and patient safety departments. So that's our next step, and that's a great question. I also received a private message Mm -hmm. asking about how we plan to sustain this process. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a couple methods, so one being that our learners, our residents as learners will become residents as teachers, and we already see this process with the residents who are in our patient safety consult service, where they go room to room with all the different ward teams and promote about uh, reporting and review different cases that come up as concerns to our residents. And then our next processes to help hopefully improve this are to work closely with our residency to, um, to integrate this process further. But we're doing a lot of things um, that... The goal to sustain, and then working, of course, with the faculty to further integrate them um, into this process.
0: BC, I want to ask a follow-up to that. I think um, in different at different times and in different ways, we've had discussions uh, about residency training. Uh, and health professional training overall here on WIHI and there's a lot of work going on at IHI in this space and the cultural issues that uh, keep people tight-lipped about what they observe uh, has often been described as pretty pronounced affecting residents and and med students and nursing students alike. And um, the story that you tell is, is very, very encouraging and I'm curious uh, about the cultural issues or barriers that maybe you were able to break down. Are they less formidable than people may think?
5: Culture is definitely the hardest part of this position, and I am very much encouraged by the fact that our residents are using the lexicon for event reporting. They understand the system. It's less about people as um the source of errors and more about um, processes and systems that can be improved. And that's something that we preach day in and day out. Um, and you see this transition from a shame and blame game, as quoted by uh, Dr. Colston, to more of this transition to um, how can we improve this process so it doesn't happen again to me even uh, or my peers. And I'm really excited that the residents seem to get this. And I think. Um, Previously, there was that mentality that, as that reporting simplified, um, uh, a way to discipline somebody or, or a way to show disdain, but now we're really encouraging it as a way to, again, improve processes and procedures.
0: What about medical students uh, and their role in in this? Uh, Again, very active learners these days, as we find out over and over again through IHI's open school. Um, How are they kind of being brought along by this as well?
5: I've worked with several of the medical students. They are part of the ward teams, and we treat them as such. Um, They typically have a little bit more free time, uh, respectively, compared to the residents, so I deem them as... um, responsible for helping to promote that culture within their team. So if they see something that is an adverse event or near-miss or unsafe condition, they are encouraged to speak up and talk about it during their um, their time with their teams. And then we've invited several of the the medical students to participate in our weekly staffing with the patient safety consults, and they really enjoy it. Um, We've had a couple that talk about IHI Open School as well and how this helps to really put things into perspective.
0: Thank you. Um, Gareth, I'm wondering, as uh, your – Gareth asked a question, uh, which is what might you like to see, at the scientific symposium in next year, because one is being planned. Gareth, you're busy <laughs> at that already, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Absolutely, and I'm sure information will be coming out about that fairly soon, about submitting, and we hope to uh, hear from some folks again. Um, but Gareth, where what areas might you like to see um, improvement work uh, kind of submitted, <clears throat> uh, Some some fields or things that people are doing?
3: So, so I'm really kind of interested in people – If some of the people, I guess, who, 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 um, who are tuning in today will be people who've, who are at the scientific symposium or, or may have been to it in the past or may have been to similar um, events like this, but some people may not have been. So I'm, I'm kind of curious as, as to something which might be interesting to, to, to you, what, what it might be, what it might look like uh, for, in terms of a scientific symposium. We, we've, We – We've tried hard to, to try and um, include as many people presenting there as possible, so these presentations you're hearing today uh, people only get ten minutes um, as, as an oral presentation with a very short five minute q and a space afterwards so so, and, and, and what we try to do or try to work into the um, scientific symposium is, is method sessions as well with some key kind of experts across the, across the world now um, in, in improvement methods and we also tried, we've also tried this year to try and introduce a kind of networking session as well uh, to try and get people talking maybe as we are now uh, a little bit about their work and, and sharing ideas so I'm, I'm curious as to what um, what what else whatever other ideas people may have and if, if they were to look for something which might attract them to come to a scientific symposium like this
0: and and uh, if you were to say some areas thanks Gareth uh, any areas that you might like to see more uh,
3: yeah bubble up in,
0: uh, in people's submissions
3: I think I think more as as as, as the world of healthcare is, is is getting to understand that some of a some of the determinants of why people seek healthcare in the first place are uh, around, around so- social determinants and maybe getting out of a hospital into into communities a little bit more, I think it'd be great to see more work around um, health, um, improvement around health and in, and and in, and, um, and in communities. That that would be a great thing to look for.
0: All right. Thanks. All right. Well, here's your chance. Gareth is here. You can start to uh, say what you might like to see. Uh, If you want uh, more descriptions of this kind of work also on WIHI, please uh, let us know. You can let us know now or later. Uh, John's going to remind us about um, a conference coming up uh, that we hope you're tuned into, and then we'll get some final remarks from our guests.
1: Yeah, of course, uh, coming up in a couple weeks is the 16th Annual International Summit on Improving Patient Care in the Office Practice and the Community. It will be held in Dallas, Texas, on March 15th to 17th. Visit IHI.org slash summit for more details.
0: All right, thanks, John. All right, let's go around the horn here. I'll start with Angela and uh, then Lori and BC perhaps, and let's just sort of uh, parting words for our uh, uh, participants today um, about your work, and uh, I don't know, where you go next perhaps, um, and uh, whether this has uh, kind of uh, given birth to even uh, kind of additional things that you're working on. All right, Angela.
2: Yeah, um, it's been a great um, uh, time being involved in this process and presenting this year. I was able to meet a lot of people from other places doing similar work, Um, so certainly some ideas came out of that. Um, I think our next big steps are really spreading this project, uh, both uh, the acute care side and the medically complex patients around the hospital, and this project having worked with complex patients is helping us do that um, because some of our subspecialty patients are also complex, and now we've tackled some of the problems that um, frequently come up there. So um, it's helped us to be more successful in sort of selling this as we spread across the hospital, which will hopefully help us make some really big gains in our patient flow and using our beds the best way that we
4: can.
0: Okay, great. Thanks, Angela. Lori?
4: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think kind of a a similar theme of as the next step Um, we've we've had asthma pathways for a long time and we've been able to show um, great improvements in our work at our Children's Hospital um, by using the standardized pathway but I think the next step is really how do we take this work and implement it in community emergency department settings or in urgent cares or outpatient pediatrics clinics where a majority of patients are actually seen. You know, the, the vast majority of kids in the community do not come to the Children's Emergency Department. They are seen in community EDs, um, where variations in practice are probably even more extreme than they are at the Children's Hospital. So I think that's really the next step, is how do we take this work, um, modify it so that it's applicable in those settings, and then really study it to make sure that we're seeing the gains we hope that we could see at the Children's Hospital out in the community.
0: All right, sounds that sounds really good. Thanks, Lori. BC.
4: Uh, Our
5: next step is really just to continue to work with hospital leadership and our residency programs uh, to further align with the institutional goals and then, of course, um, continuing ACGME and clear objectives for our residences observing and event reporting and participating in these interprofessional groups. Um, I do want to take some time to just say thank you to a lot of really amazing people who have been supportive throughout this process. That includes um, the hardworking residents of internal medicine at Banner and uh, Phoenix VA. Um, My co-chiefs, our mentors, uh, Dr. Colston, Dr. Abazadigan, Dr. Franks, program doctor, Dr. O'Malley, um, our Phoenix VA chief of staff, Dr. Deering, um, our quality improvement and patient safety departments, Dr. Skirkin. Dr. Uh, Rahman, and I'm sure I'm missing people, but of just we have such hardworking and dedicated people throughout Banner and um, the Phoenix VA who just want to see patient care improve. And so I'm really excited how committed everybody is. It makes me happy to come to work every day.
0: Uh, BC, well, it makes me happy that you were part of this program. And we do hope to uh, touch down with you again about the work going on there. Um, and same to you, Lori Rutman and Angela Stettil and in the pediatric realm. So it's been a real honor for me to work with all of you and to be able to give yet another uh, platform uh, for the good work that um, you were able to share at the Scientific Symposium in December. And I want to thank you all very much uh, for your participation and help with the show. Thank you to Gareth as well. And thanks to our um, audience, and as a reminder, of course, you can find all the materials posted to um, ihi.org tomorrow. Uh, next up on WIHI on March 12th, building bundles and buy in for value based care. I've got a real great cast to talk about uh, this dimension of global payments. Uh, and uh, just how to get everything kind of lined up uh, so you're delivering quality care and um, maximizing um, a real value uh, in terms of costs and dollars. So I hope you'll tune in for that. A reminder, you can download the chat and any slides we use today from our discussion. Uh, We invite you to take a brief survey to let us know how we did and what we can do better. And uh, Jamison Case, I think, is going to put a couple comments up on our Facebook page if you want to chime in uh, there as well. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org, and feel free to suggest future show topics. So we have a great group who helped make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicky Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber and a wonderful um, intern, Mario. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. Good day, everyone.